Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. Following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Sydney, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. As commoditization hits industries, organizations deeply struggle with differentiation and financial growth. Opportunities for competitive advantage, though, are often missed because of consistent misalignment between firm decision makers and actual customer values. The key driver of both disruptive innovation and even simpler incremental actions have significant impact on customer experience and firm financial results. In this episode's conversation, we'll discuss disruptive customer insights with Professor Joe Urbani, the marketing professor at University of Notre Dame. Disruptive customer insights that drive competitive advantage and financial results. A Florence Guild conversation with Professor Joe Urbani. Well, we really appreciate everybody coming over. It's a great honor for me to be here uh, in Sydney and hanging out with uh, my choice to, to growth buddies um, and uh, the Florence Guild. Uh, the topic is this one, disruptive customer insights. And that's a funny term maybe, but I wanna ask the audience, ask you guys what you think of this first word, and that is disruptive or disruption. So when you think of or hear disruption, you business people, what do you think? What comes to mind? How do you define it? Change? Definitely change. What else? Disruption. It's not, I mean, I think of my children at times, but um, that's a whole different kind of disruption. Um, you know, it's about change. It's about opportunity. Are you working in, and living in and competing in markets that have been disrupted? So, in my, I mean, somebody give me an example. If you think about it, I'm, put, I'm putting you on the spot, and I know your mouths are full because you're still eating lunch, but uh, what's a good example of a disruption in your markets? Uber's an interesting example. Airbnb, we have all these sharing economies. We were talking last night, and I'm on a trip at one point in, uh, in the States to Denver. I was in uh, an Uber driving to my Turo guy. Turo is the service that allows you to borrow somebody's car to drive it to my Airbnb. Right? Uh, this has been a, a, a complete change in the way we behave in, in the marketplace. So it's about disrupting the value that customers get, and in many cases with technology. Disruption is, uh, is something very common. I'm going to use this term differently here because I want to get you focused on why it matters, what's really being disruptive, and where disruption uh, really matters. A bit of a story for you as we get to that. Um, as, a, as a business school faculty member and teaching the marketing core course and a lot about strategy and business strategy and competitive strategy, I, one of my goals was to try and um, summarize and make accessible a, a lot of long history of, of uh, competitive strategy literature. 
Um, so Michael Porter and Blue Ocean Strategy and resource-based view of the firm. And there's a lot, you know, you kind of got to get an MBA to understand all that stuff. And I'm trying to figure out how to make it as straightforward and accessible as possible. So uh, after a long period of time, I came up with nine words. And uh, I was so excited to introduce these words to my students. And I put them up on the screen, um, you know, expecting a standing ovation from the crowd. And uh, what I found was snores and people's heads hitting the table. And let's say just not very impressed. Okay. Now, let me ask you, what's the problem with this statement? It sounds very common, right? It, there's nothing unique about it. It's, it sounds like, and this is the reaction, well, it's obvious, is it not? Isn't this what competition is about? So tell us something new or interesting, right? Not, not, uh, not statements of, of, uh, of the direct and obvious. Uh, that was interesting to me because I really worked hard on this. And the fact is, it, what we miss a lot in our organizations is we're trying to be different from competitors, which usually means let's beat the hell out of competitors, right? Let's get really focused on how we beat competitors and win the market, right? Um, the additional layer here, though, is the way you beat competitors is to understand customers' choices more effectively than they do, right? To understand what's important to customers and drive that into your strategy. So I, I kind of got stuck on this, and it occurred to me that there might be other ways to um, present this. Uh, <laughs> a lot of learning from academic research projects. My executive MBAs had a big impact on, on the development of the ideas I'll talk about here. Uh, and then our company, Venley, and, and, our, and including the work that is done by our Australian partner, uh, Choice to Growth, uh, lots of projects with, with clients and applying, applying the framework. The project with the executive MBAs was largely about this simple idea of you pick a customer, pick a choice they're making, you estimate what you think they're going to value and what they think about you, what they think about your competitor, and then you go ask them. And the great thing is because these are people paying for an MBA degree and they're in my class, they have to do what I tell them. So they had to go out and uh, talk to their customers. Right? even though some of them actually didn't like it. A lot of them liked it, some of them did not like it. Uh, but let me explain the, the model, because we had to have a model to do this. I couldn't just give them nine words and, and, and so forth. You have to have a way of thinking about and framing this project. So it turns out um, what occurred to me was a, a simple um, set theory idea with a Venn diagram. Uh, and actually the first time I drew this was in my um, role as a leader in, a, in the college as associate dean, because I was thinking about a competitive strategy uh, <clears throat> project and planning we were doing, think of a set of needs. In any market, a customer has needs. A customer has a set of requirements. As a, you're solving a problem for the customer. So if you can conceptualize their uh, needs as a set of items in a circle, that's what the circle looks like. If you are brand X, you ha also have a circle. And that circle represents the value that customer sees in your offering. Okay, so this circle represents what the customer needs, actually needs. This circle represents the value the customer perceives in you, okay? Now, if you, you're the brand X team, right? So the brand X team, if you look at this is your offering, what is this 
picture telling you? We're, we got positive value, right? But we're not overlapping the whole circle, right? So the part in the middle is half, the half, you know, glasses half full, right? Uh, we do, we're delivering positive value. So our, the customer's perceiving us to deliver positively. I'm a portion. What, what else, uh, I mean, what about the, the other halves? What else do you see here? There are some needs they have that we're not solving, right? So over here, they have needs. They don't perceive us to be solving those needs. So there are unmet needs. There's opportunity uh, in this market. How about over here? What does that mean? The blue. Th this is a, it's, it's, it's a very interesting thing. We do that. We do it a lot. We all do it. Okay? And part of it is because we develop these ideas. We think they're really cool. We love talking about the technology. Um, doesn't guarantee the customer is interested in it. As entre entrepreneurs or innovators or, or developing our own ways to approach the market, some of it's driven by our needs and sometimes it's driven by our projecting our needs sometimes on the, on the customer. So that's, I mean, in part, that's what entrepreneurship is about and that's what running a business is about is, is doing your best to estimate what the market needs, right? Now this picture, so you can see there's some interesting insight in this, these two circles, but it's, the model is incomplete until you add your competitor. So what happens when you do that, uh, and by the way, the reason that I first drew this was just, was all about the green, right? All about the green up in, at the top. And the green is uh, my, my uh, colleagues at Georgetown uh, in Washington, D.C., who teach this model, call the green up there, they call it the Pope's hat. They call it the Pope's hat. And the best way to envision this is just envision a little smiley face right here in the middle. And, and, uh, and of course, Georgetown is another Catholic institution, so uh, the Pope's hat is a religious relic that is of great significance in the Catholic Church, and that's how significant that green area is. It's, my nine words are that green area, right? It's the value that we're creating that matters to customers, but that's different from the competition, okay? The value that we're creating that's different uh, that matters to the customer, but that's different from the competition. So be different from competitors in ways important to customers. Uh, now, at first when we started using this, that's all we focused on was that green area up there until we started realizing that the other areas of the framework uh, have strategic meaning. And we could leverage our understanding of that strategic meaning uh, in important ways. So our green zone is why we are superior, why we have unique advantage. But you know what? The orange is really significant too because your competitor will have unique aspects of what they do. Uh, points of parity are table stakes that uh, maybe we both need to have to be equal on uh, so that people will consider us a, a relevant player in this market. Uh, we have lower value out here, so the value outside the customer circle is, uh, we think, is lower value, and it's either because it's low, either because it's not important, or maybe it could be important, and we just haven't explained it well enough. Okay, and then really significantly, we still have opportunity here. 
there, there, there's always, always the way competitive markets work is really the search for unmet needs by certain entrepreneurs. So customer unmet needs are an important uh, part of this framework. So, okay, everybody got this? It's uh, uh, important to then kind of understand what we would do with it, right? So remember I, I mentioned to you the projects were about you define a choice context, define a customer, define your offering and define a competitive offering. And then you estimate what, what the choice factors are, what's important to the customer, what they're likely to think of you, what they're likely to think of the competitor. And then you go ask your customer. Now, there's a little bit of a principle, a couple of principles here that pop up that, that you'll find interesting and important in, in, in why this seems to work in generating um, generating unique strategy ideas. Uh, so case study, this was actually a student project. It's now a $3 billion pharma market, and we're going to disguise it, brand X and brand Y. Uh, but it's actually a, a really large, significant global um, category. Here's what the brand team said. So this was a, an executive student who went back to her team and they said, what do we think the important factors are when physicians so the customer is a physician. What do we think the important factors are when a physician is choosing between our brand, we're X, and brand Y? And so here are six factors. It's not the whole analysis, but, but to keep it straightforward, six factors. And um, you know, it was, it was pretty competitive. They were trying to, in fact, do this. This is a useful exercise to do to try and figure out why we were mired in fourth place, right? Now, they had real, two really important, significant uh, product factors in terms of dosage strength and efficacy, which are, you know, pretty much the, the, the ball game here. I mean, how, how, uh, how many pills do you have to take and how effective are these pills in solving the problem? We had clear advantages there. Managed care refers to the um, policy, the, the uh, requirements for reimbursement. So physicians are aware of this. Patients get reimbursed for, for um, ha having paid and so forth. Uh, managed care was not an issue. That Both brands had this exact, objectively, they had the exact same managed care policy. Okay? This brand had been around longer. Right? This brand had been around longer. So they had the advantage of familiarity. Okay? Highly tolerable is an unmet need. So there are always a little bit of issues with, with, the, uh, with people's ability to tolerate the medicine, and so some, a little bit of a side effects here. So they're trying to figure out, though, within this context, that, that you know, we have some strong advantages here, and we're positioned reasonably well. Why are we still in fourth place? Right? Why are we still in fourth place? Now, why might they still be in fourth place looking at this? What do you think? Could be lack of awareness. I mean, what, what this implies with the competitors that they are very familiar to doctors. So they've been around a little while, they're very familiar, and sometimes that familiarity can drive a lot of business, right? Um, lack of awareness, lack of effective communication about what they're doing, okay? Now, I'll tell you that the efficacy and the managed care were two objective facts. They had studies showing the clinical superiority of their, their pharma product. Repeated studies, it was more efficacious their managed care policies were exactly the same, okay? Here's what 
the physician's thought. Ready? I'm flipping right now. So here's what, here's, here, sorry, here's our internal analysis. This is what the executive team thought. Here's what, here's what physicians thought. It was only a couple of changes. So this was a team that was fairly well informed about the physician's decision making, but there were two changes here. One was physicians thought that brand Y was equally, equally efficacious, and physicians thought that brand Y had a superior managed care policy, which would have benefited their patients. It's easier to get or better reimbursement. Okay. Now, you guys are the brand X team. What are your thoughts? Okay, so there is an issue with information here. Is it too much? It's a great way to describe it. Is it a continuum? Is it too much and we've overloaded them? Or, or is it not enough? And who's at fault here? It's the, 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 the question becomes, in America, the very common phrase is, who, who, has, who has the throat to choke here? Who has the, uh, who, who is, if we want to be brutal about this, who's, who's uh, on the line here? And you have a combination, because the people who are delivering this information, that's the sales team, but they're being fueled by you typically the marketing team or communications team who are providing the information. Okay. Now I can tell you that when the brand team and the executive team saw this, they almost dropped dead. It was so well known among the internal team that our brand is superior in efficacy and it's obvious on the inside that we have the same managed care program, they could not believe that the doctors had different beliefs. But there's enough uncertainty in the information environment, there is enough variance in how the information is uh, communicated and how frequently it's presented and so forth, that this is not uncommon. This is a, this is a case where the executive team wasn't necessarily misinformed about the product, the, the, the docs had misperceptions. Okay. So what do you do? We have to think about this in, in terms of movement of these factors. Right? Uh, and this is one of the interesting things. We, we can create a new conversation about strategy. Right? We create about, a conversation about strategy about moving value, about owning value, about what value we know we deserve to own. By the way, there's nothing more motivating than finding out that somebody thinks you are something you're not. Right? or somebody failing to recognize that you are something you really are. There is nothing more motivating like that. This is a big part of what we'll talk about as a disruptive insight. This is highly, highly motivating. And it's about moving pins. And that's the other thing that comes into play with, with this model. Because what we discovered over time is that there actually is an interesting set of strategic imperatives that sort of live right inside the model. So the, when we get the data, we have a descriptive view of what the market currently thinks, right? what the current positions are. But then we can translate to and actually think about what are the actions we might take based upon the insights we've already gotten. The, the, the complexity here is that if you really want to look at your world, you have multiple competitors, you have multiple uh, customer segments. So you literally can get a matrix of, you, you could think of these as, you know, the full set of your DNA as the combination of all these little Venn diagrams floating around. Uh, and, and typically the best uh, exercise, it's, it, the thing that's important uh, is to be very focused 
in each analysis on a customer and a competitor because that's where you get depth of insight and, and that's where you get uh, actionable stuff. Okay. Now, when you look across three competitors, what you look for is what are the commonalities here and what are the differences? Because sometimes you have to position differently against one competitor over another. Certainly across customer segments. Uh, a very uh, a quick, quick example of this. These guys are going to regret they didn't put me on a timer here uh, for, for lunchtime. I promise we'll stop before dinner. Okay, so. um, the, uh, a, a technology company, I mean, actually, uh, just don't tell anybody, I'm telling you this, LinkedIn. It was a little project we did with them, uh, a, a product that was built into their platform. It was focused on technology marketers and lead, uh, lead uh, nurturing. Right? Uh, they couldn't figure out why more people weren't using it. Uh, we modeled it against three competitors, a very unsophisticated competitor, which would be email automation, a second one, which was um, um, retargeting, a third one, which was programmatic. So you've got increasing sophistication as you go. The picture looked exactly the same across all three, which was alarming to them. And, and, what it, and it showed a lot of commoditization. It showed complexity. Uh, it, it, but, but that comparison was actually informative not because there were differences, because it was exactly the same. And it meant that people were not discriminating um, and, and, and that the, the advantages of the LinkedIn product was not clear. Uh, and it led them to divest of this, at a $50 million charge, to divest of this particular product. And that kind of hurt them in the short term, but Microsoft bought them the next quarter, so they were just fine uh, after, after that. But it's, this is a really, really good point, that your world is not just one competitor and one customer segment. You have multiples, and those comparisons are extremely important and provide a lot of insight into the, the clarity of your competitive positioning and uh, how, how uh, robust it is across competitors and across competitive uh, customer segments. Uh, but the concept here is that with the, with the larger overarching goal of building and defending that green zone, and, and we also use letters uh, for these, uh, it, it provides guidance, it provides direction, it provides an immediate conversation about what actions do we want to take on the insights we just got. Okay, what actions do we want to take on the insights we just got with the goal of building and defending. Okay. Now, here's <laughs> Here's the outcome of this case, uh, and I want to do, make a couple of points with this. First of all, key things were misperceptions. There were more data in the case than, than I'm showing you here, but the efficacy in the managed care misperceptions were enormous. They were enormous, and they motivated the team enough that they undertook a, a multi-month project to renovate the whole brand, right? and in particular to, to uh, build and help and support the sales team who were doing the communicating to physicians. So build a whole set of sales tools. They built a whole uh, program to, to put the clinical data in here. They had never shown the physicians the head-to-head -head data with, with the competition. Um, they also spent about 40% of the market, 40% share of the market spending. So 40% voice over the next year or so. So that has an impact as well. They moved from number four to number one, and the incremental dollar revenue was $70 million. Now, here's the, here's the concept, and I'll put this definition up momentarily, but uh, 
Disruptive customer insight is typically an unexpected insight. Typically, because it's unexpected, it's socialized in the organization. It can energize discussion. It can energize action. It gets involved in motivating action around it, and it produces an outcome. So one way to think about this, an important way to think about this, is that one study, a set of conversations, led to an insight that was worth $70 million. The insight itself in the customer's decision making was worth $70 million. For most organizations, and I have to say, all the organizations I've worked with and for, the default condition is we're very often terrible at integrating research results into our decision making. And that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, the, the one of which is we ignore them if they disagree with what we think we want to do, right? Or we ignore them if we think they're critical of what we're currently doing, right? The big difference between the way the insights folks value research and the decision makers value research. So a lot of times, the, these sorts of insights, they don't even make the meeting, right? Or, or, or they get buried in the 70-page report um, that nobody reads anyway, right? And you use it for a doorstop and, uh, or put it in the file drawer, right? Uh, so, so at any rate, we, our, our organizations are generally kind of biased against getting these sorts of insights. The second thing is that we are very, we tend to be very confident, especially if we've been in a market for a while, in our own projections of what we think customers value, right? And this is not just an organization. This is a human hardwired trait. We tend to have um, a, a big bias. And you've heard about behavioral economics, and you've heard about biases that we have as human beings and how it affects managerial decision making, how you need to correct for them. Well, this is one that's, that's really critical. It's a quick uh, implication or a quick piece of evidence. A study by Harry Davis and Steve Hoke at the University of Chicago. They actually did four studies within the published paper uh, that compared and looked at how individuals, how effectively individuals predict each other's preferences for new products. So four studies where participants were paired up and you estimated your interest in 20 new products and services and then you estimated your the other person's interest in 20 new products. And they did the same thing. And basically found that people were horrible at trying to predict someone else's preferences. Uh, marginally better than a random model that just took gender into account. Right? So not very good performance. However, very high confidence in the predictions. The most remarkable thing about this study is that over four studies, all the pairs of participants were husbands and wives. Okay. Husbands and wives. No better than a random model in predicting each other's preferences for, for new products. And if that doesn't stun you, uh, nothing will. I mean, and it's very, very interesting that, uh, you know, unlikely you know your customer better than you know your spouse, right? I think in most cases. Uh, the other thing to follow this up, a more recent study found that definitely managers, real managers in real, given a real situation, their preferences for an action affect their expectation of customers' preferences. Right? 
And here's the most shocking thing about this study. They said, well, maybe if we get people to empathize with the customer, we'll get people to think about who's the customer, what are their likely needs, um, put yourself in the shoes of the customer. And when they asked people to do that, keep in mind, they didn't give them new information about the customer. They just said, well, here's a glass. Fill up your assumptions about the customer. And you know what they did? When they were asked to do that, they filled up with assumptions about themselves because the effect got worse. The more they empathized with the customer and thought about the customer's preferences, the more they projected their own preferences because it brought out their customer identities. Right? So there's no easy fix to this problem other than let's put our priors down on paper, our expectations, and then let's talk to customers. That prevents anyone from saying, oh, I knew that already. You don't need to tell me that, I knew that. Uh, one very, very big issue is, and, and what we've done and what's happened sort of post hoc, looking back on this assignment and the way we've approached it, the two things are doing that internal versus external to make sure that you see there are surprises. And the second thing is that, that really discovering that the Venn diagram kind of plays into an action set that um, it, it gives you strategic direction. Across um, a, a number of studies, we haven't done this for every study we've ever done, but the ones we have where we have a formal comparison of internal estimates against external customer reports, we literally have a, a, about a 50% error rate. Right? We literally have about 50% error rate. There's a distribution on this, so some companies are really good. And secondly, we have scenarios where companies have repeated this analysis over time and two things happen. One is their alignment gets better each time. And the second is they start producing higher revenue as they go. This is, yeah, this is actually from the company. This is from the company. This is, this is our research, so, so a percent score uh, if we had you, the Brand X team, estimate the model, and then we went out and got the same data from customers, you would be right in terms of what's important, in terms of what the customers believe about competitors on about 48% of the components, which would leave 52%. Now, the other side of this is, let's say you're right on 80% of it, and that's, we see that, um, and it's, it's, it's good, it happens. Um, the other 20% still is valuable. The other 20% still represents opportunity. Okay, uh, so so this is a kind of a universal problem. I mean, this is this is something that um, we've seen repeatedly in organizations. Um, and I wanted to mention I've used a healthcare example here, um, but and we all, we show you this mainly to to, to um, see the companies in which um, we've applied uh, the framework. Um, a lot of Australian companies here t as well. Uh, our B2B and B2C, the, the products and the services, they're for-profit and they're non-profits. And the thing is that you, in all of those contexts, you have human beings making choices, right? And in all of those contexts, you can better understand how and why folks make the decisions they make. And the whole goal in building that green zone is how do you bring more value to them and communicate it effectively so that the choices come your way? Right? This is all about being different from competitors in ways important to customers, in substantive ways, and in ways that require um, <clears throat> you to effectively communicate the value you're creating. Post hoc, 
This word disruptive can be interpreted in a lot of different ways, but uh, I want to make one point as, as a takeaway here. Let's call it an in insight which motivates new value-creating, revenue-generating action. So it produces an outcome, it produces a positive outcome. Saying it's a disruptive insight sounds like a negative thing, and in some cases it may be. In some cases you may put a fact on the table and the team wrestles over it and beats each other up over it because it's, it seems critical of one or the other and so forth, but the reality is that um, if that's what the customer is telling you, that's what the customer is telling you. Right. So it may be disruptive, but I'm actually mean we tend to think of disruption as an external market thing, like we've disrupted an industry or we've disrupted a, uh, a market segment. I think we need to disrupt our organizations first. We need to disrupt our organizations first. That's where ultimately action gets taken that leads to external disruption. But disruptive insights are really really an organization's efforts to reconcile um, their, their status in the world in the eyes of customers. And it's just simply not always what we think it might be. Okay, so just, just to, to wrap up here, we'll, we'll skip this one, uh, a couple of, a few summary points about, you know, it's actually quite easy to have these conversations. It may not seem like it, but it's actually quite easy to have these conversations. So ask regularly. Ask why, and the questions are, when, when you're thinking about us as a solution for something, who else are you thinking about? Right? Just to make sure you know who the competition is, because guess what? There's disruptive insight number one. You thought you were competing with a firm that looked just like you, but instead you're competing with inertia in the organization, or you're competing with a new substitute you weren't aware of. That's a big one. Right? a really big one. So who are we competing with? And then, get them to take a few minutes. So if you were to pick us, what would be the reason? If you were to pick them, what would be the reason? Now you're not selling, you're asking them for their opinion. And then you ask them, well, how can we improve? How could this competitor improve? And then why are those things important? So there's about five questions in there, and I'll, I'll repeat them because it's important enough. Who are we competing with? And if I know brand X and brand Y, I can ask, what's the main strength for brand X? What's the main strength for brand Y? How can brand X improve? How can brand Y improve? You have a lot of stuff there with which you can populate the Venn diagram. But then also asking them why is really important. Why is that particular issue important to you? Uh, so simple conversations like that can reveal a great deal of information, and there's, two, there's, there's uh, actually two points to the value. And this is the last point of what we've learned from all these uh, kinds of studies. You, the executive from Brand X, you get new value and new information and new insight, because you're going to learn something new. So there's an understanding you get, and this is where we finally really capture people in the... Uh, particularly in my class, I have accountants and I have engineers and they come into the marketing class thinking, well, what are we going to do, draw brochures or, or uh, you know, use crayons to make ads or what are we going to do in this class? And I make them go out and talk to customers and they come back with the biggest insights of anybody because you actually can place a structure on and do a rigorous analysis of these things that seem soft and mushy. But what gets them is 
the value, the human value we place on understanding. There's nothing more exciting than learning something new that's unexpected that helps you, <clears throat> excuse me, that helps you. But the other side of it, and this is the last point I'll make about asking regularly, didn't anticipate this one. The customers love this conversation. And it's the same human value. People love being understood. People love being understood. They will, we get more discussion from customers coming out of, of geez, thanks so much for finally, after you've been selling to me for 15 years, for finally coming out and asking me these questions about what's important to me. Okay? And, and it turns out this is much more powerful than, than you ever might think and that I ever in, anticipated. Secondly, you know, engage your group your internal team broadly. Get lots of people in on the conversation when these insights come back. Because uh, the idea is alignment. We find that uh, having spent a year doing a lot of deep discussions with, with marketing folks and organizations in the, in the US, um, differentiating in commoditized markets <coughs> is issue number one. And then surprisingly, trying to herd the cats Inside the organization is issue number two. Trying to get people aligned around strategy is a huge challenge. Right, so first, having a strategy is a big issue, and second, aligning people around that strategy is a big issue. So you kind of have to address it directly. And then third, you know, this is not about um, having the research people put a giant PowerPoint up on, in front of everybody and, and has folks asleep by the seventh slide. It's about putting an insight out there and saying, what decision do we make based upon this? How does this influence our decision? And how should we leverage this insight to, to improve our position and improve the, uh, uh, the lot of the company and the revenue position of the company? So, um, I don't know if it's afternoon tea time yet, or uh, I hope I haven't outstayed my welcome, but uh, we do have hopefully some time for, uh, for questions. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.